As Chris says, we're doing a series on um, what we call Beyond Revival. It's a kind of five-week series. Nigel spoke last week, and, um, and it's going to carry on for the next uh, kind of four, four weeks, four kind of teaching series that we're holding here. And um, I have the kind of the privilege of kind of building on what Nigel said and just trying to take us forward. Uh, if you weren't here last week, my apologies. I'll kind of summarize a little bit. But I encourage you to kind of go to the kind of the podcast that we have um, on the church um, website, and just to kind of if you want to go back and get a little bit more more detail. But if you were here uh, last week, Nigel was talking about what he called the the, the four R's. So I kind of wrote him at the top there: renewal, revival, reformation, restoration, or what I put in brackets, kind of transformation. And um, Nigel was sharing from his kind of experience of, of his journey with Jesus, how he had just seen through his church life, God just kind of begin to move in the church, what we'd call renewal, bringing life to the church. And then he started talking about some of the foundations and some of the characteristics um, of revival. And my aim this morning is kind of twofold. Firstly, just to really maybe kind of nail that home, what he said and kind of emphasize some of the things he said, and also why we're making such a big deal of it, as well as beginning the journey to start talking about this whole idea of um, kind of reformation and restoration. Why we're going there? Why do we call it beyond revival? Why don't we just call it revival? You know, this is a journey I've been on for a number of years. I kind of fell in love with this subject when I was at university. Um, I actually studied business. But for some reason, I decided that I would use our university was, library was spread by kind of departments, and I tended to study in what was the kind of religious studies, religious education section. And so, for my break between revising business, I would kind of go and start reading some of the books, and there were numerous books on revival, and that's what started kind of whetting my my appetite. And in a minute, I would start to expand a little bit about what I mean by that. But the reason why we're making such an emphasis on this is because there's a lot of talk about revival. Even this week, um, I heard a kind of DVD and just you know somebody teaching and referring to a couple of things like that. They would refer to as revival, and I wouldn't. And I'll explain in a minute why. But the reason why we're emphasising it is because as a church, we really believe, and hopefully after I've spoken a little bit, that we want to press into what God is wanting and seeking to do. And we want to see and bring our communities into life. You've been around the last few months. Nigel's just been teaching about some of the things that we believe as a leadership God is wanting to take us as a church. And you'll hear this phrase and you'll keep hearing this phrase again and again, that we want to lead our communities into life. We want to rewrite the stories of the people that we interact with in in our um, communities. And part of that transformation is going to expand in our vision and our expectation of what God wants to do. And so as soon as when I hear people kind of in my mind's eye just going kind to of shrink in what God could do or wanting to do, I want to just kind of expand it and say God is wanting to do way, way, way more. It's a bit like having a game, wherever it is, I play with my children sometimes. Uh, well, I play a lot of things with my children, but mainly football, because I seem to like football. Probably comes from my bloodline. And um, it really helps when we go somewhere to play. You've got to say, these are the targets. You know, you know, you can put down your jacket or your coat, whatever it is, when you go into the fields. 
And so this morning, I probably want to just say, this is what we're aiming for. And I want to expand that. So what we pray for, what we desire for, what we cry out to God for is ultimately what he wants. And I don't want it to be too small. So I'm going to be drawing a, a bit from the Bible and I'll be drawing a, a quite a lot from church history. I'm going to introduce you to some of my friends, some of my heroes of church history that God has used and moved through to see incredible things happen. Nigel last week can kind of refer to the story of Acts, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. He just did an amazing work. It started to impact those out on the street. And ultimately from there, it started to impact the whole known world. To see people come to Jesus and to begin to begin to bring transformation to their lives and to their communities. So when I was thinking about who shall I pick on, uh, and there aren't that many options. In the Bible, there's lots of stories about renewal, where God come and touched the church or the equivalent church of the time, the nation of Israel. But there aren't many examples of what I would call genuine revival. But I'd like to look at one. I can't remember, do I press forward or go backwards? Well. And I'm uh, reading from, from Jonah, the story of Jonah. And I've got a little bit from the book of Naaman. Often we mention Naaman in this church. Uh, the book of Naaman was written totally to the people group that Jonah went to, the Ninevites. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And Naaman chapter 3 verse 1 says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. If you think if Naaman was maybe kind of exaggerating a bit, was just using kind of poetic language, I kind of just did a little bit of um, um, kind of research and, and see what was it like in those times. And um, from all the discoveries they made of Nineveh and uh, the kingdom, the Syrian kingdom at that time that we find in museums, um, yeah, my apologies to the youth that are here. Well, actually, the youth might enjoy it more. But, um, you know, some of the choice quotes, these are things they boast about. We know about these things because they wrote them as kind of like memorial stones to this is how good, this is how great we are. So this is just some of the, I don't know, highlights, shall we say. Um, I cut off their heads and formed them into pillars. Many within the border of my own land are flayed and sprayed their, spread their skins upon the wall. I cut off the limbs of the officers, the royal officers who are rebelled. 3,000 captives are burned with fire. And the reason I share that is it gives us some idea that this place, Nineveh, this place was a, a wicked place. They thought nothing of just killing people. That was its reputation. That's what it boasted about. That was a city that God was saying, Jonah, go and speak to him. Go and share the good news to them. And, um, oh, did I go back? Should I go forward? Go in. Next, okay. That's better. So Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. 
And you look at that story, a city with a reputation of evil and bloodshed. Jonah comes along and he shares about God. And there's a total transformation from the top to the bottom. These weren't kind of God-fearers that needed kind of renewal, to use that language, reading, bringing back to God. There were people that had nothing to do with the living God. And God turned up. We're not giving much details of what that looked like, but we know from top to bottom. And that is our, our prayer. That is our desire. Nigel mentioned some of these last week, but some of the characteristics of revivals we push in, like I said, from church history as well, in the sense that this is what we want, is that multitudes of people start choosing to follow Jesus out there in their communities. Out there in their communities. He, um, Nigel mentioned last week the story of Coleraine in Northern Ireland in 1858, where amongst some of the schools, initially in the boys' school and then into the girls' school, God just turned up. There's no better, no easier way of kind of trying to explain it. He turned up, and one by one, hundreds of children started crying out to God, saying, meet us here. And the cry rose from the city, and it began to spread, and so the parents began to cry out to God. Other examples, and again, I'm going to whisk through these, but these are different people you can read about in, in church history. A person called Charles Finney was around the same period of time, but in the States, God used mightily to bring what I would call a genuine revival with the definition that we're using. And he would go through factories. He literally wouldn't have to say anything, and people would begin to cry out to God there in their factories, saying, what do I need to do to be saved? It wasn't seeing organized. It was just him with the presence of God going into places and whole factories started and come to Jesus. Is that something we want? I don't know. I think I want. You're just looking at me very blankly. <laughs> but that for me, it's like, yes, God, that's what about. That is about leading our communities into life when it starts to hit factories. Other quick examples where, again, this is a difference of a genuine, what I would call a revival where God turns up. Again, in um, 1858, 1859, there was a movement of God in New York. And ships, when they got within like two or three miles of New York, people would start to cry out to God and say, what do I need to do to start following you? You didn't have to wait till you got there. The same thing happened um, in East Anglia, the last kind of major movement of God in England uh, in kind of 1927. Went up to about 1929. Again, a ship started going to places like Great Yarmouth. Even before they got to the harbour, they were crying out, saying, God, we need to know you. There was no preacher, nobody else involved. It was a movement of God. And in a minute, I'm going to pray a, a clip um, from the Hebridean revival, a guy called Duncan Campbell. But you will see there as he begins to share. Again, just stories of God just begin to move and touch people out there in the countryside, you know, in the, the pubs and different places. He just encountered them. So a definite defining characteristic is multitudes choosing to follow him in their communities. Secondly, these encounters are not limited to a place, to a location, to a person often. 
Uh, some of the examples I gave, it was just out there. Nobody was there. Nobody was going to there doing a, a talk. Yeah, there's often individuals that you can put and say, yeah, this person was a major player uh, in this revival. But when God really begins to just turn up the heat and move, it's not limited. And so often when I hear things, I, I hear this kind of limitation. I sometimes read Christian magazines and newspapers that come my way sometimes, and I look and I think, that's not revival. That's great, and I love it, and I'll run to it, and I'll go to these things. But there's more. There's more. Let alone what we're going to talk about as we get to the end, beyond revival. There is more. Let us, let's go for something. Let's not be satisfied with an event, with a location. That's good. That's a stepping stone, but we desire more, and that's what we want as a, as a church. Again, from my study, like I say, I've been studying revivals for 20 years. I could talk here for hours, but I went with story after story. If anything, often when a movement of God, what we call revival and awakening, started getting too much associated with a personal location, then that's often when it began to die. When it became focused on the personal location rather than this is all about God. This is all about God move. This is all about God's glory. God's manifest glory. The Bible says, you know, the glory of God will cover the whole earth. Yes, his glory is here already, but that kind of manifestation, kind of when he kind of breaks through and you can see him, that's what we're yearning for. That's what we, we want. And lastly, as it says, as we begin to move on into restoration and reformation, reformation and restoration, transformation, when we begin to go on beyond that and it begins to impact society, it's not just a movement that happens in the church, it's a movement of the church as it begins to impact the community. So to kind of, kind of conclude this section, I just want to read something, and then you're going to hear a clip. And they're both from the same person, this guy called Duncan Campbell that God used in 1949. But this is what he says. In witnessing of the movement, I would like to first state what I mean by revival as witness in the Hebrides. I do not mean a time of relig- religious entertainment. I do not mean sensational, spectacular advertising. In a God-sent revival, you do not need to spend money on advertising. I do not mean high-pressured methods to get people into an inquiry room. That's kind of a place where you might want to just learn and know more about Jesus. In revival, every service is an inquiry room. The roads and hillside become sacred spots. Revival is a going of God amongst his people, an awareness of God laying hold of the community. Here we see the difference between a successful campaign and revival. In the former, we may see many brought to a saving knowledge of truth and the church or mission experience a time of quickening, a time of growth. But so far as the town or district is concerned, no real change is visible. The world goes on its way and the dance and picture shows are still crowded. But in revival, the fear of God lays hold upon the community, moving men and women who until then had no concern for spiritual things to seek after God. We're going to play a clip. My apologies. It's got like a translation below. It's got quite a strong Scottish accent. There's also got this lovely music that kind of plays in the background. I'm not technical enough to remove it. But just focusing on the words as we kind of hear about what it can and could look like. When God gets out, suddenly men and women all over the parish, 
where grit by the fear of God. God are my hands clean, is my heart pure. The moment that that happened in the bar, a power was let loose in Barbas that shook the whole of Louis. God stepped out. The Holy Spirit began to move among the people. And the minister writing about what happened on the following morning to this. You met God on medicine. Never, never forget. 
I will put the, the rest of it up on um, kind of Facebook. But like I said, I'm sharing it partly just to expand our hearts, expand our perspectives, expand our prayers. Because we hear this word a lot. I see it all the time. There's many things that are called revival that I would probably more blunt than Nigel. He referred to something last week that I would definitely not call a revival. I'd say the great. I go to some of these things. I press into some of these things because I want more and more of God. But yet at the same time, I know what God has done in the past and I have a sense of what is God's heart for what he wants to do in the future. So that's why we're kind of really making a, a push on an issue on it because we really believe that God's desire ultimately is to go beyond revival, that his desire is to bring transformation to our communities. And to summarize it like I put on your, your, your sheet, the reason why we're really bothered, and I just combined two verses there, is because God so loved the world. John 3.16, that he sent his son. And then that calling that we have at the end of Matthew 28, verse 19, what we sometimes call the Great Commission, that we are to go and make disciples of all nations. Because we want to see transformation of our world. That's why Jesus died. And we're called to make disciples of all nations, not just to make disciples of individuals. I've talked on this before, and, and certainly we'll be teaching on this in the next few weeks. But we are called to bring disciples of nations, to baptize nations. Use that context. It's not individuals. To baptize nations into God and what God wants to do. And that should be what burns in our heart. That's what should burn in our desire and our prayers to see God move. And it's the Father's heart. You know, I've said this before here from the pulpit, you know, that what God does for one of his children, he wants to do for other his children. He's done it in the past. Why not? Why not again? Imagine what it would be like if some of these stories we're talking about or listening about began to happen. When you came within, you know, on the motorway, you knew when you were getting close. The presence of God was there. The fire of God was falling on Winchester or Bishopstoke where I live or filling the gap for where you live. The presence of God is so there. They don't have to come to me. They begin to cry out to God in their respective places. So hopefully, Nigel and myself are kind of started whetting your appetite, starting to expand your heart and your vision. So what... So what do we do? What's our response? And particularly Nigel asked me just to share, particularly just from historically how things have worked. Now sadly, in some ways, revival is not one of these things that if you say you do one A, B and C, you get D. But at the same time, there are certain characteristics. If you look in the Bible when you look in church history, certain things that seem to attract revival. The way I look at revival, the way I try to maybe cope or understand this kind of dynamic as I look historically, is I think of it a bit like a, a lightning strike. Lightning can strike anywhere, but it's also more likely to strike in certain places. What I mean by that, if you stand on a high mountain with a big metal pole in a thunderstorm, 
I'm not recommending this, particularly for the youth, you're more likely to get struck by lightning. And revival is a bit like that. So revival is a supernatural movement of God. God can do whatever he wants. That's why one reason why he's God. So God can turn up and bring what I would define as a revival, what we've been talking about as a revival, anywhere, at any time, should he desire. But at the same time, he often says, I want to see some of these fiends. And so my desire and part of the reason of teaching is this in churches. As a church, we want to be individuals. We want to be communities. We want to be a church that's going to like having this big metal pole and saying, God, come and strike here. Come, God. We want to see you move here. Strike me, God. Uh, <laughs> everybody's moving away. <laughs> Go next to electrical equipment. God, we want it. And so what are some of these things? And it can be quite easily categorized as you look through Scripture and through history. One is prayer, and one is an increasingly uh, aspect of growing in holiness and the pursuit of God. Some ways incredibly simplistically, simplistic but incredibly powerful. So there's a couple of verses, kind of well-known verses. One is from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, when the temple was dedicated. It says, If my people who are called by my name will put away their pride and pray and look for my face and turn from their sinful ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins and will heal their land. God will move. Pray, put aside our pride, seek his face. And then also Psalm 24, verses 3 to 4. I could have chosen a number of verses. But it says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in this holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Prayer and holiness. They are trapped. It's like putting up that metal rod and saying, God, strike me. Strike me. Yeah, it can happen anywhere, but these things seem to attract his heart. He loves them. And therefore, my desire for myself, my desire for us, is that we would pursue this. Firstly, prayer. I, agree. I think I put in your notes that um, quote early in the Welsh Revive when evangelists um, visited the meetings and stood up and said, Friends, I have journeyed into Wales with a hope that I may glean the secret of the Welsh Revival. In an instant, Evan Roberts, the man that God was particularly using at that time in the Welsh Revival, stood up and said, My brother, there is no secret. Ask and ye shall receive prayer. Like I said, I don't have time to go into every revival, but pretty much behind every revival, there was at least one person who'd been praying for it for years. Nigel last week talked about a guy called Jonathan Edwards, and he gave a little quote from the famous sermon, Man in the Hands of an Angry God, when the preacher, Jonathan Edwards, started to speak, and just people began to cry out and say, we need you, God. And behind him was a guy called David Brainard, who'd been praying for years. If you listen more to the story um, of this one in, we just played in the Hebrew D revival, there were two kind of really, really old ladies, disabled ladies that had been praying for years, saying, God, come and move here. I mentioned earlier about um, Charles Finney, the man who God seemed to use, they walked through factories and people began to cry out to God. He had two particular people, one was called Nash, I can't remember the other one, but again, behind these things, there was prayer. 
There's one particular I always love because a lot of my work, particularly amongst Muslims, is going to different places and locations and starting to pray and say, God, move here. And one of the ones I keep coming back to uh, was at the turn of the last century in northern India. And as people started going out, God moved and whole villages started coming to Jesus nearly much spontaneously. And people were thinking, like, why does this happen in certain villages and not in other villages? And it confused them for a while while this kind of spontaneity of God's revival movement was coming. So somebody came across a, a diary of somebody that had been there 50 years before. It was nicknamed Praying Hyde. The villages that he prayed in were the ones where revival came. The ones where he wasn't, revival didn't come. For whatever reason. Like I say, you can't always explain why God does something. There's one case in revival where even the whole, it wasn't just individuals. It was totally birthed and carried on in prayer. And that was what's called the Moravian Revival. That started on August the 13th, 1727. A group of people gathered in Germany, and they started a prayer meeting that lasted 100 years. And I'll talk a little bit about it later, because it's one of the ones that has had the greatest long-term impact and carries on. The whole kind of 24-7 movement in the UK was birthed. Out of that. So prayer is so crucial. You know, that's why, as Chris said, we're doing this. Oh, I keep pointing on where that's why. Which is why we're doing this kind of prayer next week on May the 27th. I've shared this a few times. I'll share it again because it was a dream I had. I had this dream of curling. And um, in the dream, I saw this man just let go, you know, the stone. You can just see them coming. And then these people, you know, they brush, trying to get it to hit the target. And I knew him before I asked God in the dream, and I said, God, what does that mean? And I thought, God, I said, you know, I've unleashed the kingdom of God, the reality of God. You could say the revival, you can use whatever language you want, but there's a greater impact of God upon our communities. And he's inviting us. And prayer is one of the ways of doing that. Sometimes it's vigorous, sometimes it's in gatherings, sometimes it's individually saying, God, we want you to move here. And so as a, as a church, as we respond to this, we don't want to just teach on a subject, but we'd like to try to create opportunities to outwork it. That's why we organize. I can't remember, it's like 10 to 12 different places next Saturday. Just look on the, the e-press where people are gathering to pray. And even if one of those doesn't fit, don't let it stop you. I know, Katie, myself, we're at a training event. By the time we finish it, most of them are finished. The events we could go to. But we have to make you know, a decision. How, we are, how are we going to respond to this? If we believe that prayer is crucial, what is our corporate response? And we've got one opportunity next week. What is our individual response? Why is God? How much do we want it? How much do we care? Yeah, and this is a challenge to myself. How much do I want to see our communities change? I was thinking about it. Yesterday, and it hit me again this morning, we just live in a small cul-de-sac. We've got seven neighbors. How much do I really care for them? How much do I really believe that if they don't have an encounter with Jesus, that has major implications for them when they die? Am I really bothered? I would say yes, but is that reflected in my, my prayer life? What about you? I'm not going to wait today. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to pray personally for myself, but um, 
I'm going to share a little bit about holiness. But let's just use this time. You know, I talked about prayer, leading our communities into life. What does that mean for us? I'm just going to pray. And feel free just to pray yourself. God, come and break, break my heart. Lord, I do so much believe in, in revival and what you wanted to do, to restore, to transform people's lives. Yet I pray, Father, that you would break my heart more. Lord, for my neighbors, for those who I interact with, God, God, I pray you begin to do something in me. Lord, change my heart. Let my heart be broken. Let my heart weep. May it be broken over the things that break your heart, God. May it be broken over the communities that break your heart, God. Lord, do something so deep in us, God. Lord, I pray you'll wreck us, God. Lord, soften our hearts this morning, God. Soften my heart this morning. God, it's your glory, Lord. It's your love to bring transformation. Come and do something deep in us today. Yeah. Come and do something. Yeah. Amen. So prayer is like a lightning rod. What's our call? What's our challenge? What's the implications for us? I'll throw that out to you. And there'll be a later opportunity to come and reflect on it at the front if you want. But we need to be broken. How much do we really want to see it happen? Secondly, just holiness. You know, again, I gave you some quotes there. I gave one particularly by a guy called Frank Bartman. He was a man who God used particularly in relation to prayer behind what's called Azusa Street Revival. That happened in 1906, April the 9th, 1906. Greatest move of God there's ever been in the world in the sense of its implication. And he said the depth of revival would be determined by the depth of repentance. The Walsh revival's motto, bend the church, save the people. Again, the challenge is to myself and to each one of us, how much do we want it? How much do we want to be broken? How much do we want to obey God? Sometimes it can be the simplest of things that God wants us to do. There's a famous story in the Argentinian revival of the 1950s. They were praying and praying and praying for God to move. Do you know what started the revival there? When I think it was a young lady, I can't remember how old she was, but there was a lady who felt like God said to her for a number of days, she didn't do it for a number of days, she felt like God said to her, tap the table. It was a simple act of obedience, a simple act of responding to what God was saying to her. She thought, that's daft, that's stupid. After a few days, she tapped the table. From that moment on, hundreds of thousands of people started following Jesus. Why? I don't know. Like I said, this is to do with God's sovereignty. But I know as you look through story after story, there's a response, there's an obedience. What is God calling us to do? And often if you read stories, particularly people like Charles Finney, had a whole list of different things he felt one needed to do. But there's just two things I felt when I was praying into this, because I was thinking, I don't, probably don't have time to go through great lists. I can just leave it to the Holy Spirit to challenge us. 
But there's two things that came to my mind. One's just kind of what I call consecration. It's a religious word. So I try to just explain it, which is really meaning giving everything over to God. What is God calling us to give to him that we haven't given to him before? I know it's very easy to vocally say, God, I give you my life. But why is he calling us to? My prayer this morning, as I'm speaking, is that he begins to highlight things. I brought this along. Not mine. <laughs> Quite obviously, yes. Wouldn't fit me. But you know, in tie dye, only those things that are exposed to dye get dyed. Yeah? It's in the obvious. You know, the idea is the bits that you kind of screw up don't get dyed. And as I was thinking about this, I felt like God challenging me and kind of bringing it here to the church. Where do we have white patches? What areas of our life does he want us to say, give over to me, Paul? It might be work. It might be family. One of the ones that Kate and I often talk about, because we spend a lot of time thinking about it, is our, is our house. We're just working on um, making some changes in our, in our house, whatever. And often our conversation just talks about house. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but we often challenge ourselves. What do we need to lay? Maybe it's a hobby. It could be a whole load of things. Why is God saying to us this morning where he wants us just to consecrate to him? And again, there'll be an opportunity this morning. And you can start away before we start and say, God, what is it? What do we need to lay down? And the second thing that I just felt that came to me, and I just want to highlight it, is um, where do we need sharpening? I heard this quote this week. I was reading a book. You know, sometimes you read a book and something just jumps out at you. And this just jumped out to me. It said, sharp is safe, dull is dangerous. Sharp is safe, dull is dangerous. And I thought, oh, interesting. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I was thinking about knives. You know, I have most of my accidents with blunt knives as you're trying to cut something and it doesn't cut. And I just felt like I should look it up. So I looked it up in the dictionary and this is what it said. Dull is specifically applied to a point or edge that has lost its previous sharpness. A dull knife. And generally, notes, how you say it? A lack of keenness, zest, spirit, or intensity. And for me, that was a bit, I felt like maybe God was saying to me and I threw it again out to us as a church. Is an area of life that needs sharpening. An area of our life where we have become dull. Where once before there used to be an intensity, there used to be a passion. Maybe we're doing the same thing we used to do. It might be leading a life group, it might be leading worship, even from the front. And it's just become dull and repetitive. Fill in the gap, ask God. You know, these are things that I ask myself what is it? Even as I come to preach, I was coming to preach this morning, I felt I kind of, not a heaviness in a negative way, but kind of that, that challenge. Yeah, I speak here reasonably often. But I don't ever want to come from a place of dullness because I've done it before. I know how to stand up and speak. Is there that kind of keenness? Is there that zest? Is there that intensity? Is that spirit? I know this is a heavy message, which is probably why I talked about revival right at the beginning because that's what it's about. When we talk about prayer, we talk about holiness, we talk about consecration. What is it? God so loved the world. Why is it? Because we want to see our communities come into transformation. That's what it's about. So what are the implications for us? I don't know. 
it will vary. Maybe God is speaking, and again, we're going to have an opportunity at the end just to kind of respond, lacing down an area of life. We say, God, take it again. Work in that area again. Move. But just to kind of step like the bridge, because I'm bridging from last week, bridging into Nigel's talk next week. We're talking about revival and moving and saying, God, come and strike us. But we're also moving on because we want to see beyond revival. We want to see reformation. We want to see restoration. We want to see things that lasted. Because however much, and one reason why we're talking about beyond revival is, most revivals and movements of God, within a few years, you wouldn't know it happened, sadly. Even last week, Nigel was sharing the, the famous story from the Welsh revival where when the God moved, you know, the donkeys, you know, could not understand what the owners were saying because the language had changed so massively. Within kind of 10, particularly by the time you hit the First World War, there would be no evidence that the Welsh revival would have happened, however powerful that was. Very few of them seemed to move on and leave a lasting legacy. So quickly, just to go through that, I think I have it up on, the, on your sheets, but beyond revival, those moves of God that caused the most lasting and enduring impact were those that brought communities into life. Those that took life, that's Jesus' life, into the communities. And that's why we will, we have and we will carry on talking about this week in, week out. Because we believe that's what God's heart is and that's where we want to go. We want to go beyond revival. And I gave a couple of examples there in in Scripture, Acts chapter 2. By the time you get to Acts 19 verse 10, you hear that within the whole kind of Roman empire that was known and had connections, the good news of Jesus had been taught. It had a major impact. There was two people around the two, um, a few hundred years ago, but the picture there will make it a little bit more interesting. One on one side was John Wesley, and the person on the other side was called George Whitfield. Interesting thing, if you kind of just go with a normal definition or revival, George Whitfield was way more so we say successful. Way more people came to Jesus through his ministry. Way more, if you want to like the renewal, kind of God turned up and did incredibly bizarre things in his meeting. But you don't find many churches now that came from George Whitfield. That's why we have the Methodist movement. Because John Wesley started to equip, disciple, and release those that came to Jesus. I mentioned before Count von Zinderdorf, the guy that had this prayer meeting that lasted 100 years. Their legacy lasted because they went out and started doing things. They started reaching the communities. Way ahead of the UK and thinking itself, you know, as one of the countries that first began to send missionaries across the world, they were sending people abroad like 100 years before. I mean, they did crazy things when you read the story. They sold themselves into slavery to reach slaves. They would get themselves put onto slave ships so they could reach all those people before they died, before they got to the other side. I mean, they did nutty things, those guys. You read on a human level. But it lasted and it carries on, their impact. And lastly, I give the example of Zuzestri. I said it was the greatest revival in the sense of his impact. Having lived in South America, 
I'm eternally grateful, Azusa Street. If you go there, or most of the places of the world I've been, just like Ethiopia, the kind of Pentecostal movement that came out of Azusa Street, this, particularly the denomination, the Assemblies of God, all over the place, because it was something they didn't keep to themselves, but they took out and they started reaching communities, bringing life into communities, and it had a lasting legacy. I don't have time to read the quote by Alan Scott, but you can read it. But really what he's saying, in some ways he's saying what we have in our heart as a church, as a leadership. It's kind of saying, yeah, we love what God did in revival. We pray for revival. They had one in 1859. But we want something more. We want something that's more sustainable than revival. Something that I and my children can carry as a legacy. We want to create a situation where the kingdom of God is unleashed. And I love the bit there where it says, on anyone, through anyone, on, any, on everything, everywhere. Anywhere, everywhere. In our communities, come into a place of transformation. All right, Sam, can we have the band up? I'm sure God wants to do a whole load of other things. I'm looking at Chris, see what happens. But um, one of the things I, I asked Sam and the band is to have a, a worship song. And it's an opportunity it's to do with kind of just coming before God and just laying things before him. And um, as I've been speaking, I know it's been, I describe it, hey, we talk a challenging talk. And in some ways I don't apologize because even as I speak, it's a challenge to myself. But it's an invitation. Look at it as an invitation an invitation to bring life into our cities, into our communities. And, um, and maybe as I've been speaking, God's been challenging you about areas of your life, aspects to do with prayer, areas of your life where it maybe feels like it's dull. You come run of the mill, and there's just an opportunity to come to the front and just do business with God. In some ways, I don't really expect there to be loads of people coming to minister because it's between us and God. And so as the band begin to play this song, I'd encourage you, start coming. Don't wait. Start coming to the front and do business with God. Do you want to stand or sing? the cross. 